BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. In today's podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the latest on America's labor unions today, how strong they are, what challenges they face, and where they've been the most successful. But first, here's my take on the Nevada caucuses. I just got back from Las Vegas, and let's be honest, there's no other way you can sum it up. It was a total rout for Bernie Sanders. He not only won the caucuses, he left everybody else, starting with Joe Biden, in the dust. And this is a state where he was not supposed to shine, a Western state with a large Hispanic voting population, which means that Bernie moves into South Carolina with a head of steam, while Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg are struggling to stay alive. And Mike Bloomberg keeps spending more and more money with nothing to show for it so far. No doubt about it, Bernie's surge is making a lot of longtime Democrats nervous. They keep waiting for one of the more centrist candidates to catch on and slow him down. But you know what? It hasn't happened yet, and Super Tuesday may be their last chance. We still don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be. It could still be Joe Biden or Michael Bloomberg or any of the others. But one thing is now clear. It could also be, and looks more and more like it might be, Bernie Sanders. So maybe establishment Democrats should stop worrying so much about how they're going to stop Bernie Sanders and start thinking about how they're going to win, how they're going to beat Donald Trump with Bernie Sanders as the Democratic Party's nominee. Now we'll see what happens in South Carolina. And so now let's turn to a look at the state of America's labor unions today. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Once a year, we pause to reflect on the state of the union. Well, you know, at least once a year, we should also pause to reflect on the state of our union, where things are not so good. Wages are stagnant, hard-earned pensions are shaky, big corporations do all they can to prevent workers from forming a union, and the Trump administration may be the most anti-labor administration ever. At the same time, there are signs of new life among unions with the Fight for 15, for example, and the nationwide teacher strikes. So how's it going overall? Are unions coming back? Nobody knows better than Stephen Greenhouse, who spent two decades covering the labor movement for the New York Times, and who sums it all up in his powerful new book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. We spoke with Mr. Greenhouse recently from his home in New York. Steve, it's good to join you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Great to be here, Bill. So, um, you know, as journalists, um, we usually put our biases aside, but I thought for this topic, uh, I want to be right up front from the beginning. Uh, I am a union man, uh, 
for 40 years. I've been a member of uh, AFTRA, which is now SAG-AFTRA. I have, uh, and proudly so, uh, my show, The Bill Press Show and The Bill Press Podcast is 100% sponsored by labor unions. I've never crossed a picket line, and I never will, so that's who I am at any rate. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there as we talk about the American labor movement. I'm a proud, proud member of it. But, you know, every year, Steve, the president gives uh, his view of the state of the union. I'd like to have your view on the state of our unions today. Uh, what's going on? It's a mixed state, Bill. Uh, I should say, you know, the first act of my book was when I was uh, a young newspaper reporter and I helped try to form a union at my newspaper in northern New <laughs> Jersey. And we had 70 people scheduled to go out to a dinner on a Friday night to meet with a union organizer. And magically that afternoon, that Friday afternoon, management put a notice on the bulletin board that we're all getting 20% raises to take the steam out of the <laughs> unionization drive. So the state of unions... I'd say is mixed. On one hand, unfortunately, uh, the percentage of workers in unions continues to decline year after year. Uh, we just learned in, you know, in January that the, in the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that the uh, percentage of workers in unions has dropped to 10.3% from 10.5%. That's down from a record you know, peak of 35% in the 1950s. And in the private sector, only 6.2% of workers are in unions. That's just one in 16. Uh, that's you know, the lowest of any industrial nation. So in that sense, things are bad. Also, even though uh, Donald Trump promised in giving away the $1 trillion tax cut to corporations that wages would be up healthily and nicely, wages really aren't going up very much at all, even, which is especially surprising when the jobless rate is, uh, is so low. On the good news side, why I say it's mixed, Bill, is that yeah. workers are really waking up. We're seeing a lot more activism than we saw two years ago. We've seen the teacher strikes in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, the Marriott strikes in eight cities, the stop and shop strike in New England, and the you know biggest of all you know with the GM strike. So workers are frustrated. They're acting up. Even elite white collar workers, like twenty thousand Google workers. You know, you know, went on strike for a few hours to protest how badly Google management was handling sexual harassment cases. And other promising things that are happening is, you know, uh, you know, all the Democratic presidential candidates have been have been outspokenly pro-union. They put forward, you know, these very pro-union platforms. You might expect mm -hmm. that from Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Buttigieg has a great pro-union platform. Biden, of course. Booker had one. And and and. You know, so that's good. Also good is we're seeing a real wave of interest in unions among young people, uh, you know, grad students, adjunct professors, nurses, and lots of folks in our profession, news, the digital media, you know, uh, Slate and, and, and Salon and Huffington Post have unionized, you know, the most anti-union newspaper in the country, the LA Times is unionized, the second most anti-union paper in the country, the Chicago Tribune has unionized. So like things are rebounding in many ways. Now, whether it could be translated into much bigger numbers is the big question. I'm working on a story right now about a union here in New York that's unionized 15,000 airport workers in, in New York, Boston, Washington, Philadelphia, and Florida. So unions are getting their act together, but not enough unions are really moving forward at the same time. 
Well, in your book, um, Beaten Down, Worked Up, uh, you talk about uh, some of those uh, positive things, those exciting things that are happening in the labor movement. And you also indicate there are a lot of reasons why the percentage of membership has gone down. Uh, tell us about a couple of them. I mean, uh, it seems to me that too many people don't recognize what unions have meant for American workers, what they've brought to the American workers. And today, too many people maybe want to take all of that for granted, like they want something for nothing. Uh, that's a great question, Bill. So when I go around the country giving speeches about my book, I say one of the reasons I wrote this book is that uh, far too many Americans, especially young Americans, know far too little about labor unions and what they've accomplished. Like, thanks to labor unions, you know, we have, uh, you know, pensions and, and, and employer-sponsored health coverage. And, and a weekend. And paid vacation. And I love the bumper sticker, <laughs> yeah. unions, the folks who brought you the weekend. And I say that a lot of young people seem to think that the 40-hour work week was handed down by God. <laughs> and, I explain, yeah. and I explain no. Uh, it was won through deca decades, not years, but decades of struggle by workers and their unions. In my very first historical chapter, I write about a famous strike here in New York City by 20,000 female garment workers called the Uprising right. the 20,000, where the cops and hired thugs beat the fill-in-the-blank, beat the bejesus out of these 17-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old female garment workers. It was horrendous. And they were fighting not for a 40-hour week. They were just fighting to reduce their work week from 56 hours to 52 hours. So it's, you know, the unions have done a huge amount in improving the lives of Americans. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that. And as unions have become more powerful and, and raised wages and, and gotten better benefits, corporations in many ways have grown less happy about that. So uh, you ask why has the percentage of workers in unions declined? I think there's several reasons. Uh, I think you know a big reason is that um, the number of manufacturing workers in the U.S. has declined significantly, and unions right. were the core, the base of organized labor. Uh, we went from having, uh, you know, it used to be one in four worker, workers in the U.S. was a manufacturing worker. In 1979, at the peak, there were just under 20 million manufacturing workers. That fell to that has fallen to just over 12 million. So it's been a fall of about 40%. So I think that explains a lot of the loss. In my book, I argue that the biggest reason uh, the percentage of union members, the absolute number of union members has declined is that corporations in the United States fight harder against unions than corporations in any other industrialized country. And they really play hardball. You know, I, I have an anecdote about uh, uh, Menards, which is a uh, a uh, home improvement company based in Wisconsin. Um, and they had a clause in manager's contracts and store manager's contracts that if those manager's stores unionized, the managers would have their pay cut by 60%, 60%. Wow. So imagine wow. the lengths, illegal and legal, that the store managers would go to in order to uh, fight unions. I have another anecdote. I uh, once... Uh, interviewed a Walmart store manager from Louisville, and he said one day he went into the men's room in his store, and there was a little flyer saying, Walmart needs a union. So he followed Walmart <laughs> rules, and he had to call the Walmart hotline to say, there's union activity in my store. <laughs> 
And you wow. know, lo and behold, the next day, a corporate jet flies in from Walmart headquarters with three people in their crack anti-union team to like snuff out any interest, any activism for the union. Um, there's a terrific professor up at Cornell School of Industrial Labor Relations, Kate Bronfenbrenner, has really been the expert in studying the techniques uh, employers use to beat back unions. And, and in her study, where she surveyed union organizers, she found that 57% of employers in the U.S. threaten to close operations if workers vote to unionize. 47% threaten, believe it or not, to cut wages and benefits if workers vote to unionize. They say, if you unionize, things might end up worse for you. And, and her study also found that 34% of corporations fire rank-and-file workers who support unions to take the wind out of unionization drives. And her study also found that 28% of companies seek to have, you know, plant spies to infiltrate the union organizing committee. So, you know, American corporations it, fight very hard, uh, you know, to quash the crush unions. And there are other factors I should, of course, mention, Bill, that um, there's been, you know, a, you know co corporate America f is focusing far harder than it did, you know, decades ago to maximize profits Right. And minimize labor costs. I think that's also gotten them to focus more on you know, defeating unions. You know, we talk about some people talk about the financialization of the economy as Wall Street and hedge funds have more power over companies, and they also press companies to do their utmost to reduce costs and and weaken unions. Then deregulation under Jimmy Carter and and Ronald Reagan, you know, really hurt the Teamsters Union, the truck drivers. Uh, tele telecommunications airline unions, Ronald Reagan's famous or infamous crushing of the uh, air traffic controllers. Right. I wanted to ask you about that particular okay. uh, action by Ronald Reagan let's, back let's in 1981. Let's go back to that in half a second because someone's going to yeah, criticize okay. me for not mentioning the following. And unions have screwed up in many ways, in some ways, and that has also hurt their cause. There was, as anyone who saw the Irishman knows, there has been too much corruption in the labor movement, but there's far, far, far less corruption now in in the union movement than there used to be. And I argue now that there's far more corruption in the White House nowadays uh, and in the Trump administration than there are than there is in the in the uh, in, in labor unions nowadays. Plus, unions have a legacy, unfortunately, of discriminating against women and workers of color. Again, they've gotten infinitely better on that, and and that's all to the good. And unfortunately, you know, some unions aren't doing enough organizing, their leaders don't have enough vision about how to build for the future. But there are you know, some really good unions, the Service Employees Union, the Steelworkers, Ask Me, um, are really you know, doing a lot, uh, you know, the Hotel Workers Union you know, and, uh, and a lot of others are doing a lot of organizing, that's all to the good. So we were gonna go back to Patco. So. Well, so back to uh, you touched on so many things there. I'd like to uh, to hear more about. But I, I, just to to mention that Ronald Reagan. I mean, in 1981. I mean, he broke the back of the air traffic controllers, and that must that's had a huge impact, hasn't it, on ability to organize or willingness, maybe even to organize. Absolutely, Bill. So uh, I devote a chapter in my book to that. And you know, one of the crazy things was, you know, Ronald Reagan used to be president of the Screen right. Actors Guild, and he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild when it went on its very first strike. Uh, he, you know, he was a very conservative guy. He wasn't seen as, 
usually pro-labor, but people thought he would be somewhat sympathetic because of his union background. And the air traffic controllers were one of the very few unions that actually endorsed Reagan over Jimmy Carter in 1980. And they had uh, you know, very exorbitant demands. They wanted like raises of 30, 40, 50% while going from a five-day week to a four-day week. And they expected Reagan to do all sorts of favors for them because uh, mm -hmm. he, you know, because they had endorsed him. And they went on strike, 13,000 went on strike. They, you know, they thought they could totally close down the nation's airports and Reagan would cry uncle would surrender and give the union what they wanted. But, you know, for Reagan, when the air traffic controllers went on strike, and it was an illegal strike because federal workers aren't allowed to go on strike, it became kind of a make my day moment. It really gave Reagan and his and a lot of anti-union people in his administration opportunity to say, you know, make my day. And and Reagan told all the striking air traffic controllers, if you don't come back to work within 48 hours, you're fired. And he fired 11,700. And it was wow. a disaster for that union. It was a disaster for the union movement. In retrospect, a lot of leaders from other unions say that you know, the air traffic controllers really screwed up. They didn't gauge uh, public sentiment. The public was hugely against them. They didn't work closely enough with other unions for union support. They really went in their own solitary way, and they pissed off a, a conservative president who, in his first few months of office, was trying to show his strength. And you know, the crushing, the defeat of the uh, Air Traffic Controllers Union really sent a big message to corporate executives that, hey, it's time to get tough against unions. And what Reagan did also sent a loud message to labor leaders saying, be careful about being militant, be careful about going on strike because management could crush you. Right. Now, so that leads to the question, and you, you talk about this in your book too, that strikes today are much, much more rare than they used to be. Uh, and you just said something a little earlier about maybe some of the labor unions got too... Um, maybe a little too tentative or a little too afraid of calling a major major strike because of what happened to the air traffic controller. But um, are strikes still, if we just, you mentioned the GM strike, for example, strikes still effective and why are there so few strikes? So um, in, uh, say in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, you know, many years there were like 200 strikes by, right. by more than, with more than a thousand workers or even 300. So there were a lot of strikes. Over the past 10 years or so, we've gone down to just averaging 13 major strikes a year. A year. A year. And I think, uh, you know, what happened in the 1980s was that not just, not just, you know, Reagan beat beat the air traffic controllers unions. You know, the other companies, um, you know, Greyhound, uh, the International Paper, they really crushed unions during big strikes, and 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 because companies are using much tougher tactics. They were locking out workers. They were permanently replacing workers who go on strike, basically taking away their jobs. The United States is the only industrialized country of 30 industrialized countries where uh, corporations are able to permanently, permanently replace people who go on strike and that people became much more worried that, hey, if I go on strike to seek a 7% raise over two years, I might lose my job. Is it worth it? And companies played much harder ball against strikes. So I think that was the main reason. Another big reason, Bill, was that you know in the 1980s we really saw the rise of globalization and foreign competition, 
And uh, you know, a lot of companies were moving factories abroad. And again, workers mm -hmm. worried that, hey, if we're too militant, if we go on strike, that might just hasten the decision by our employer to move operations to Mexico or China or Vietnam or Bangladesh. So, um, But in the past two years, there's been this surprising rebound of strikes. I'll tell you a story very quickly. So I turned in the original draft of my book on a Monday morning, February 19th, 2018. And it was a fairly quiet time for labor. There wasn't much really percolating except for the fight for 15, which Price was... You know, which you know, which really accomplished a lot. That was not traditional union unions going on strike. It was fast food workers going out for one day at a time. So three days later, on Thursday morning, February twenty second, there was this volcanic explosion in the state of West Virginia, where thousands of redshirted teachers went on this huge strike, twenty, thirty, forty thousand teachers, and that really signaled a reawakening of labor. You know, the baton was passed from there to Oklahoma to Kentucky. Sure. Uh, teachers in, right. in Denver, teachers in, in Oklahoma, then in Arizona, then Los Angeles and Chicago. And I think that those the successes of the teachers helped spawn the Marriott strike in eight cities, the uh, stop and shop strike. Um, there was a Mack truck strike. There was a General Motors strike. Uh, and now we're seeing uh, and then in Jan uh, this month in January, there's been a um, a strike in uh, 70, 7,800 nurses and healthcare workers in Washington State at Sweden, Swedish Medical Center have gone on strike. So there is a, a rebound in labor militancy. So why? That's a big question. I think workers felt that, you know, we're in the 10th year of a supposedly great economic recovery. We have a president shouting that he's made America great again. And a lot of workers are saying, well, things ain't great for me. My wages are just going up a tiny bit. You know, corporations are boasting about record profits. Again, Trump boasts every other day about how the stock market has hit record levels. And I think a lot of workers feel that they're not getting their fair share. You know, the teachers, you know, they see the legislatures of West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona cutting taxes for the rich, cutting taxes for corporations, and that's starving the school budgets. The teachers, you know, in West Virginia didn't get a raise four years in a row. In some of the other states, they didn't get a raise for 10 years in a row. And they said, this is insane, and the only way to really change this is to like stand up and go on strike. So I think the General Motors workers, you know, they mm -hmm. took all sorts of uh, concessions to help bring General Motors out of bankruptcy during the uh, Great Recession. And you know, they took many years of pay freezes. They agreed to a two-year two-year uh, two-tier wage system. You know, they saw several plans close. And they expected, they said, you know, we scratched GM's back big time, but GM has done very little in terms of giving us raises, and it just closed this huge, important Lordstown plant. And they said, we got to fix things. And, and they wanted to send a strong message to GM that, you know, you can't push us around. We want to be treated with respect, and we want our fair share of the huge, of the huge profits that you're enjoying. So do you see a renewed, you mentioned the fight for 15, the AFT, the teacher strikes, and, and the GM, the UAW. Do you see a, a, a new emphasis or a renewed emphasis on organizing among labor unions, spending more time, more activity, putting more people out you know, to, recruit, to recruit new members? 
yes and no. I mean, for some for some unions, yes. Yeah. Some unions, you know. I, but that's the key, isn't it? I mean, some unions are really or... doing it. Uh, others are still not doing enough. And and you know, as I mentioned, you know, uh, you know, the service employees union has organized, you know, one five fifteen thousand airport workers on the East Coast. They're trying to unionize airport workers now elsewhere. And I mean, I, I'm saying these are. The low-wage people, the baggage handlers, the wheelchair pushers, the security guards, the private security guards who help the airlines, um, you know, the folks, the cabin cleaners who clean the planes, you know, many of them are just getting paid eight, nine dollars an hour. And the unions here in, in, in New York and New Jersey got the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey to get to pledge to pay a minimum of $19, have companies, require companies to pay a minimum of $19 an hour for 40,000 workers. And this is really jazzed workers and many of them say look what the unions accomplished yeah, for us right we want to do right. that. it's a little like the cio uh the congress of industrial organizations in the 1930s and 40s people say look at all these spectacular gains that the cio cio has won for workers we want that you know i i have an anecdote in my book that when my when my mother uh i was covering scott walker's war against unions in in, in wisconsin in madison 2011 i was on the phone with my then 86 year old mother and she said, you know, when I grew up during the Depression and I saw and we saw, you know, what the CIO did in organizing workers and the wage gains they had, you know, we told ourselves, we want what the union workers have. We want to join a union. And, and she bemoaned that nowadays too often, at least, you know, with what Scott Walker was doing in Wisconsin, you know, they manipulated people to say, oh, union workers have too much. We want to take, right. take away from them what we have. And unfortunately, there's been this you know, loss of solidarity. People say, instead of saying, we want to have what union workers have, we want to share the same gains, they say, oh, they got too much, you got to take away from them. So, uh, but, you know, again, the, you know, part of the good news, and I don't want to sound like a Christian evangelist, but part <laughs> of the good news is more Americans are feeling good about unions. And a poll that Gallup does an annual poll uh, about how Americans feel about unions. And this in this year's poll, and in, in the poll in last August, it found that 64% of Americans approve of unions, which is nearly the highest level in 50 years. That's up sharply from 48% a decade ago. And what in some especially good news for unions, the uh, age group that feels best about unions is the 18 to 34 group, where 67% wow. yeah. um, uh, approve of unions. And other good news for unions is uh, there's a study done by folks at MIT that said that basically one in two non-union workers say they'd like to join a union if they could. That's up from 32%, from 32% basically to 50% in 20 years. So a lot of workers want to join a union. I think they're sick of income inequality. They're sick of corporate profits being at records while wages are not going up. I think a lot of young people feel I'm graduating college with forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in debt. And, and something's broken because I'm not making enough to begin to pay back my debt. And, and you know, just as, uh, you know, some workers unfortunately thought that Donald Trump would be their solution to their problems, you know, I think they're looking to change the rigged system and they see unions as an effective way to do that. So that's why I think we're seeing so much, you know, so much interest in unions nowadays. I get all these emails from young people saying, you know, I'd like to form a union at my, you know, at, at, at where I work. What do I mm -hmm. do? Yeah. And we're talking with Stephen Greenhouse, 
Uh, in its review of Stephen Greenhouse's book, the New York Times says that he probably knows more about the American workplace than anyone else in the country. His new book is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get right back with Stephen Greenhouse. For this podcast, focusing on the state of the labor movement today, we recognize not just one union, but all the great unions that sponsor the Bill Press Pod. The hardworking men and women of the laborers, the iron workers, the sheet metal rail and transportation workers, the steel workers, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Teamsters, the American Federation of Teachers. We salute them all. We stand in solidarity with all of them, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Stephen, good to talk to you again. Uh, and you mentioned income inequality just before the break. I was struck in the book by the link you make between organized labor and income inequality um, and tax cuts, if I may Quote from uh, Beaten Down, Worked Up, the share of national income going to business profits has climbed to its highest level since World War II, while workers' share of income, employee compensation, including benefits, has slid to its lowest level since 1940s. So you make a direct link between union membership and income inequality. Yes, yeah, so... Uh I'm not, you know, there have been a lot of economic studies showing that, you know, as unions have grown weaker, uh, that has added to inequality and... and, Income inequality has gotten worse. Yeah, and another big study by professors at, you know, Princeton found that, you know, since the 1930s, as unions have gotten stronger, they played a role in uh, organizing low-wage workers, raising their pay, and that had a real influence on reducing... uh, income inequality. You know, one thing a lot of people don't realize is the only time over the past century when income inequality really declined in the United States was the era when unions were strongest, the 1940s through 1970s. 
And, and that's when the percentage of income going to the top 1% declined from 21% to 8%. And now since the 1980s, as unions have grown, grown uh, weaker, as corporations focus ever more on maximizing profits, uh, the top 1% has gone back from 8% of income to earning 21% of income. And there have been other studies showing that, you know, um, you know, you know, there's a study by some folks at the IMF saying that uh, the decline in unions across the industrial world as accounts for about half the reason for why the top 1% have made such big income gains in recent years. So unions, you know, what do unions do? They, you know, workers feel they're not being paid enough, especially low-wage workers, so they unionize, and they try to get a, a larger, you know, share of their corporation's profits and prosperity for them. And you know, one of the reasons income inequality has grown so humongously in the United States is that unions and worker power have grown so weak. And I argue in my book, unfortunately, that worker power in the U.S. has you know, maybe fallen to its weakest level in many decades. Whereas, and, and with workers not having enough bargaining power, you know, corporation profits are going through the roof. They're turning, you know, giving back shareholders that are making a killing. There are all these share buybacks. So. The folks who own corporations are, of course, the rich folks. So you hold down wages, right. so you uh, and you increase the amount of dividends and, and and capital gains going to folks on top, and that just increases income inequality. So I think that's imp it's important, you know, to strengthen unions to help build a fairer economy. And we should also say, Bill, a whole thing we haven't even touched on is that unions play a very important role in making a fairer democracy, because unions represent the little guy and little gal, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, you know, we see the Sheldon Adelson's and, you know, the Koch brothers network, you know, give hundreds of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the night in the 2016 election cycle. I explained in the book that corporations donated $3.4 billion, which was more than 16, one, six times as much as unions gave. And, and, you know, that's why I think a lot of, and then lobbying each year in Washington, corporations spend $3 billion, more than 60, 60 times as much as unions would spend $48 million. So you wonder <clears throat> when corporate profits were at record levels, when uh, Wall Street was at record levels, why did Donald Trump and the Republicans rush to give corporations a trillion dollar tax cut that they didn't need at all? It's because you know, they were dancing to the tune of, of, of those, you know, of, of the campaign donors. And, and, you know, it would have been so much better for workers if, you know, Donald Trump had made good on his promise and spent a trillion dollars instead on, on infrastructure. That would, have, oh. that would have created hundreds of thousands of middle-class jobs, good jobs. Many of them would have been union jobs. But, um, you know, a lot of Republicans, you know, hate government and they didn't want to spend money on infrastructure. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed those numbers out because we hear all the time uh, that yeah corporations spend money but so do labor unions right as if they're spending an equal amount which is and it's far 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 from the truth but and yet do you believe labor unions still do have and exercise a lot of political clout particularly in turnout in in getting people to talk about organizing right in political campaigns you see that today? Uh, um, yes and no. Again, you know, it depends on how you define a lot. I mean, I would submit, Bill, that if in the 2016 election unions had really 
done a lot in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, Trump never would have won those three states, and those three states were decisive in the election. And I asked union leaders, why didn't you do more in those three key states? And they say, we were sure Hillary was going to win. We didn't think we had to pull out the stops. But I should note, and I explain this in the book too, so Scott Walker declared war against public sector unions, and he really crippled, eviscerated public sector unions in his state. And he also uh, you know, signed a right-to-work law. And so a lot of people don't realize that in Wisconsin, the uh, number of union members has fallen at a faster rate than any other state. It's fallen by 44% in the past decade, by 177,000. So how many votes did Donald Trump win Wisconsin by 22,700? Michigan, the car industry, auto industry suffered this huge crisis. There are huge layoffs of of uh, union members. Uh, Michigan also passed a right-to-work law. It passed several other laws uh, that hurt unions badly. And in in Michigan, the number of union members dropped by 144,000 in the past uh, decade, and and Trump won Michigan by 10,700 votes. So I often think, and uh, if union membership hadn't dropped so significantly in those three states, it dropped by 100. 80,000 plus in Pennsylvania. Trump won Pennsylvania by 44,000. If it hadn't dropped so much, if those you know people had remained in their unions and heard the union message about uh, you know how Donald Trump really wasn't telling the truth when he said, "I will bring back all the jobs," and Donald Trump is trying to fool you when he says, uh, "Don't worry, when I'm president, no factories will close in the United States." I think that might have made a, a big difference. I think unions, you know have a disproportionate voice compared with the numbers in getting people out and getting people to knock on doors and make phone calls. But I still think that it's just dwarfed many times by, by corporate power and corporate money. When, when Sheldon Adelson himself gives $100 million in a campaign, he has a gazillion you know, times more say, more voice in politics than your typical steel worker or school teacher or Walmart worker. And I think, you know, that's really broken. And, and many people are talking about the importance of enacting laws to make it easier to unionize, to allow industry-wide bargaining, to allow perhaps unionization through card check, you know, to stop these crazy rules that companies can prohibit union organizers from even setting foot into the employee parking lot. But you know, I ex- explained in the book that it would be very, very hard to pass any pro-union laws, even many pro-worker laws, until we fix our very broken campaign finance system. I, you know, one thing I point out in the book, Bill, is that you know, by more than 80%, like 80% to 15%, 80% to 20%, by 5 to 1, 4 to 1, Americans support a higher minimum wage. They support, uh, you know, we're the only industrial country that doesn't have laws guaranteeing all workers paid parentally, paid maternity leave. We're the only industrial country that doesn't guarantee all workers paid vacations. We're the only industrial country that, except for South Korea, that doesn't guarantee all workers paid sick days. So like by 85% to 14%, uh, polls find Americans want Congress to pass a law requiring paid sick days and 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 requiring paid leave for when you when you have a baby, and because so many folks in Congress are totally beholden to corporations, because our campaign finance system is so broken and so dominated by corporations and the rich, you know a lot of you know Congress just isn't taking many very very basic 
pro-worker actions hasn't enacted some extremely basic pro-worker protections that are just universal in the in the rest of the industrial world and and that's why i say it's so important that we as a nation fix our very broken campaign finance system to help make both our economy fairer and our democracy fairer uh and uh we count on our unions to uh, keep up that fight uh and uh and salute them uh and applaud them when they do his book is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Stephen Greenhouse, congratulations. Thank you. Very, very important Thanks. book. Thanks very uh, much. Very important message. And um, the union keeps us strong, and you keep you give us hope that the unions will become even stronger. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Thanks very much. Really great to talk with you, Bill. That's it for this edition of the uh, Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Mr. Greenhouse for joining us. And we encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. So you are a regular listener and a regular member. Pull up the Bill Press Pod, uh, look for the word subscribe, click on subscribe, and you are in, you are part of the team. Appreciate that very much. And also encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That way you will uh, have an advance notice of every podcast and, of course, catch up with me several times a day with my new tweets. That's it for today. Meanwhile, stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.